Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome, dear delegates, to episode 12 of the Delegation Game. Last time our story heated up with speeches lobbed from both sides of the fence, and the peace conference in London came to terms with Foch's regime as the world kept moving outside the walls of the Annabay Hotel. In this episode, new French Premier Raymond Poincaré arrives in time to join the Council of Eight. We look at Foch's plans for the Russian Civil War and how they're taking shape. The Dominions meet with David Lloyd George, or at least they speak publicly to him before the rest of the conference in a plenary council meeting, and the Prime Minister has a plan for getting what he wants from Foch. Europe continues to fall apart as the Bavarian, Hungarian, Serbian and Russian situations all come under our microscope, and of course we have much more in store. 
We didn't vote on anything last week, as I attempted instead to let all that happened sink in for you guys, and as I hoped, we would all be able to just get along. To my pleasant surprise, this has mostly panned out, and it seems that everyone's just a touch less active in the last week, probably because it's holidays for some of us lucky ones who maybe don't have to talk to themselves for a living. Today, anyway, we have a proposal to vote on which reflects the historical period in which it was negotiated. The Japanese, supported by the Siamese, in our narrative at least, put forward their racial equality proposal for you all to vote on, and we're joined by some of our newer delegates as well, such as the Bavarian and Romanian premiers. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, it seems we have been able to create an Arab state, but not arrive at a solution to the Jewish state quite yet. That's incredibly all we really have to do in terms of housekeeping, but I should add that we have a new delegate joining us, but not till next week, as he hasn't finalised his details just yet. Mr. Arthur McCallville will be interested to know that it seems likely this will be another Newfoundlander, so look forward to formal introductions next week and get ready to welcome him to the group over the next few days. A reminder for those listening in, the fact that we have another fellow joining our band of crazy delegates should go to show that it is not too late to join up and play this game now. From the downloads, I can tell that the vast majority of you are listening in, or at least downloading it, which is pretty cool in and of itself, but if you want to play and have a role in shaping this alternative history we have going here, make sure to go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and sign up for just $6 a month, which will of course get you access to all that juicy extra content too. With that out of the way then, I'll now take you all to a closed meeting of the Polish delegation to start us off. Paderewski tried again. He knew that he was close to a breakthrough, but for the life of him, he couldn't quite get the piano to cooperate. Bognan Kudzal had joked that as an instrument, it was cursed because it had seen so many terrible things, and while Paderewski had disagreed, he couldn't deny that if any piano could potentially be cursed, it had to be this one. The instrument had travelled with him from the Hotel Twomley to the Hotel Zachary, through the disrupted French countryside, and then across the channel to the Annabay Hotel. He had played the most mournful songs on it. He had come to its side almost within minutes of losing Frederick Bronski, and he had celebrated the triumphs of Poland by crafting the most joyful melodies. Paderewski heard a man clear his throat behind him. It was Josef Pilsudski, the war veteran and apparently the statesman who had made quite the name for himself over the previous few weeks. Pilsudski held in his hands a document with a red line stitched across it. These were official Polish state papers, and thus of the utmost importance. Paderewski did a 180-degree turn on his piano stool and faced towards Pilsudski. Commander, what have you got for me? Paderewski asked. Pilsudski's face said it all. The alliance with France, coupled with the arms deal that he had been agitating for over several weeks, had finally been achieved. He handed the document to Paderewski without saying a word. It was all in French, of course, and after a quick scan to the bottom, he could see that it was signed by President Marshal Ferdinand Foch. He scanned through the document some more. It was only three pages in length, but absolutely profound in its significance. This was nothing less than a manifesto to ally France and Poland together, to supply Poland with French arms, and to use Warsaw as the international hub for launching an invasion of Bolshevik Russia from the west. Further details could be found within, including the precise numbers of soldiers which 
each state had so far volunteered for the cause. One thing was certain. Clemenceau's murder by Bolshevik agents had caused an explosion of anti-Bolshevik feeling, not just in France but all across the continent. It had reinvigorated the previously tired soldiery of Europe. Men were positively lining up to fight in honour of the father of victory, and Foch had devised a unique method for recognising their service. The document contained a few sentences which, Foch intimated, would be communicated throughout the world. It was essentially a call to arms against the Bolsheviks, and Foch termed it the Clemenceau Directive. According to the President Marshal, all detachments of volunteers that took part in the campaign into Russia would be called Tiger Brigades, in honour of the late Tiger who had been slain by a Bolshevik bullet. It was an admittedly ingenious way of making use of the enthusiasm for honouring Clemenceau's memory. As Paderewski read the document, he nodded, which led Pilsudski to comment, Tiger Brigades? I thought it was a bit on the nose myself, but I think it'll grow on me. Rumour has it that the name was Poincaré's idea, a kind of peace offering, I suppose. Paderewski nodded again. This should do well for us, Commander, Paderewski said, handing the document back to Pilsudski. Are we the only ones to receive this? Yes, Prime Minister, Pilsudski said. Other delegations have received modified versions of this document, but only ours refers to the alliance and arms deal, in case we wish to keep this information to ourselves. I see no harm in letting the other delegations know of our diplomatic success, Paderewski replied. We have a meeting with a few other delegates now, do we not? Yes, Prime Minister, Pilsudski said. The Spanish, Russian, Belgian and Greek delegates are in the next room. We begin in five minutes. Five minutes? Commander, might you have asked me to join you earlier? Forgive me, Prime Minister, Pilsudski replied. I could not bear to interrupt your playing. To do so would have been a crime. The room where the Spanish, Russian, Greek and Belgian delegates were seated was a square kind of room. It was dominated by a large oak table in the centre and it was insulated by bookshelves on each of the walls. A small door, perhaps designed for a statesman from the Tudor era, served as the only entryway into the room. Dmitry Robotnik, the tallest man in London according to some, had had to virtually crawl into the room because of this strange quality. The room was a tight fit as well. There was space for their seats and this table, and their elbows, but little else. What was the bright side? Robotnik might have wondered. Well, the room was completely soundproof, and it was used sparingly, which meant that their meetings would be virtually unknown to the other delegates. Robotnik heard the door open, and the Polish voices comment on its size. He stood up awkwardly, and while slightly hunched over, since the roof was lower than was ideal, made his way to shake the hand of the Poles, Pilsudski and Paderewski. Gentlemen, Pilsudski said, a smile plastered across his face, we bring good news from Marshal Foch. It seems the new President of France will serve our interests well indeed. The conversation was warm and productive, as IOUs were exchanged across the large oak table. Venizelos requested support for a landing of Greek forces at Smyrna. Dingobrush wanted approval from those present to serve as the second-in-command for any military expedition to Russia. Paul Mons wanted their help talking Dingobrush out of it. Nobody was quite sure what Antonio Mora wanted, except that it was probably the opposite of what King Alfonso of Spain wanted. Robotnik spoke up. Gentlemen, 
I assume you have received word from the President Marshal Ferdinand Foch. I believe it is now time to arrange our plan for the liberation of my homeland. The Council for Russian Freedoms meets later today, and I hope to see some of you there to discuss the President Marshal's telegram. Pilsudski then interjected. It brings me great pleasure to formally announce before you all that this plan has been granted a considerable shot in the arm. Gentlemen, if you will agree to it, Warsaw will be prepared for the launching of this expedition, and Poland will continue to bolster the anti-Bolshevik effort in any way it can. Venizelos cleared his throat, and the six other men at the table immediately took notice. Each of them believed the Greek premier was on their side, because he had told them so. Each of them believed Venizelos's cause was just, because he had told them so as well. Venizelos was used to having all eyes on him. In fact, he relished the opportunity. Gentlemen, Venizelos began, when I was fighting against terrible odds in the mountains of Crete, do you know what kept me going? Love of country and love of family. These two things are the life force of any state, and it pleases me greatly that Russia, the orthodox friend of all Greeks, has not lost such qualities. I am sure my Polish colleagues will be thankful that, indeed, Russia is not yet lost. Bolshevism is the virus which threatens to strip Russia and the world of its identity and its soul, in place of the grey and dismal factory conditions depicted in the worst alternative fantasies. We must stand against this repugnant ideology. We must disinfect the lands of Russia until not a percentage of Bolshevism is left. This will be a bloody battle, but the bloodiest battles, the bitterest of battles, in my experience, contain the most noble of goals, and a Russia which exists as a free nation, that is, free to choose its own destiny, without being under threat from gun or army, is a Russia which all of us in this room can be proud of. Yet, it is something we must work for. Greece was nearly killed in this war. I will not stand by and permit Russia to be sacrificed on this altar also. Greece pledges 5,000 men for this fight. Robotnik stood up so quickly to applaud the Greek premier that he banged his head on the ceiling, which drew a laugh from everyone, including Robotnik himself. Your Excellency, Robotnik said while rubbing his head, if what you say is true, and if your pledges are fulfilled, please know that Russia will stand by Greece until the sun sets for the final time on this earth. The Aegean, Anatolia, Constantinople itself, all of this will be yours if you help us now. Venizelos nodded in acknowledgement. Evidently, he had expected Robotnik to make such a promise. The wily Greek premier hadn't gotten this far by giving things away for free. Pilsudski then stood up to close the meeting. Gentlemen, thank you again for coming. I felt it was important to gather before the Council for Russian Freedoms met later this afternoon. I think it is clear that we all understand each other, and if it was not clear, then let me reiterate here for the record. From next week, Warsaw will be accepting residency applications for all would-be freedom fighters in Russia. We can discuss the finer details later on, such as troop contributions already recorded, but for now, may I express my thanks and optimism that together we can find a better solution for Russia, which will suit all of us in equal measure. Antonio Mora, the Premier of Spain, looked at his watch before standing up himself. Commander, Mora said in French, His Highness Alfonso of the House of Bourbon has signified his opposition to the Bolshevik menace and has vowed to send 10,000 of his finest marines to Warsaw. They will provide invaluable training for those volunteers in need of training in amphibious landing manoeuvres. Shall I signal my approval to His Majesty now? Pilsudski was taken aback. 
Why had the Spanish Premier waited until now to drop this bombshell? Certainly, Your Excellency, Pilsudski replied. Please ensure you return to our meeting of the Council for Russian Freedoms at 4pm in the central conference room of the Anabay Hotel. Antonio Mora nodded and sat back down, a smirk of satisfaction spreading across his face. While nobody could quite work him out, he could at least claim to have the last word. The meeting stopped when he said so. Sir Alistair Tangred and Arthur Fitzwilliam looked at one another, each bearing a similar expression. This meeting was destined to be long and very drawn out. Yet another special plenary conference meeting, it was said. This was the third one this month. Tangred had heard one of the Americans complain about the amount of them. The room was packed today, and the top table was increasingly crowded, with one extra person now seated at it. Former President of France, turned Premier of France, Raymond Poincaré. Poincaré had already begun reminding those present that he had been the Premier of France before in 1912, and had decided to take the position up again for the good of France. Whenever anyone brought up Foch, Poincaré simply explained how consistently he had guided him. If one pushed further, Poincaré would excuse himself, then express his view that Clemenceau's premiership had been good for France during a hard time, but that the Tiger and his successors spun their wheels since the war ended. Now, with Foch as president and himself as premier, France's government was in more capable hands, aided by this natural leadership structure. It all seemed tremendously awkward to him, but Tancred knew at the same time that it did no good to berate Poincaré. They would have to reach the source if they wished to alter any of Foch's 16 points significantly. That morning, Lloyd George had told him that by next Wednesday, the 24th of April 1919, he and some other delegates would be in France, meeting face-to-face with the President Marshal. Then, Lloyd George insisted, the new President Marshal would give way, because Lloyd George would make him an offer he couldn't refuse. The Prime Minister had yet to disclose what that offer would be, but Tancred had been told that the Swiss man, Felix Kalender would be going with them to serve as an intermediary. Lloyd George had indicated that one individual from the Foreign Office who had stayed behind, Harold Nicholson, would also help in the negotiations. Tancred had heard great things about this Nicholson, to the effect that he was overwhelmingly pro-Greek, but a tremendous talent and a very knowledgeable man, so he felt somewhat reassured by that character sketch. It would be a great test of his abilities as a negotiator, but Tancred was ready for it. The room was indeed full, but it was also strangely relaxed. Perhaps it was the occasion. It was Good Friday, the day of the crucifixion, and many delegates present planned to meet with their families for the rest of the evening. Some joked that they had been crucified in their own way already. The sun had shone generously all day, and some even hoped that the 19th of April 1919 might represent something of an early summer. But first, business would have to be done. This was the Annabay Hotel's central conference room, and it consisted of a top table where the big four were seated, the leaders of the United States, Britain, France and Japan, while in front of them, about ten feet away, three long tables, perpendicular to the top table, were outstretched. On top of these tables was the finest spring water, but some delegates fumed, still no free wine as had been for the conference in Paris. When asked what the story was about no wine, 
Lloyd George had insisted that regulations ordered no alcohol be consumed during working hours. Imagine the scandal, Lloyd George had said, if our citizens found out that we had been guzzling beer and wine while plotting the fate of the nations of the world. But one suspected the real reason alcohol supplies were so low was because trade with France was down, and the recent war had led to reduced supplies to begin with. Seated at the top table were the four heads of each delegation. David Lloyd George for the United Kingdom, Woodrow Wilson for the United States, Prince Sione for Japan, and now Raymond Poincaré for France. Behind them, in a small row of seats, sat their advisers, but also the more important minor delegates, including Tancred and Fitzwilliam for the United Kingdom, Teddy Roosevelt and House for the United States, René Massigli for France, and Baron Makino Nabuaki for Japan. The top table was sufficiently elevated, against the advice of Woodrow Wilson, so that it looked down onto the room. This, Poincaré claimed, was so that the big four could see who in the minor nations was talking, but an enraged Massigli had claimed that this was because the new French premier wanted his ego placed even higher up on a pedestal than it already was. Massigli and Poincaré did not get on well. Before the war, and during it, the two men had had a rocky relationship. And now, as Poincaré took Massigli's job as acting premier, and the rest of the delegates essentially let him, the French deputies accepted the change, and Massigli's new position as deputy premier was confirmed. Massigli was not impressed, and he made this loudly known. They may as well give me the title of deputy frog, he exclaimed to Roosevelt, for I am just as likely now to croak as I am to actually have my opinions listened to. The expression made Roosevelt laugh out loud, though it was less funny when he had tried to explain the association of French people with frogs. Massigli just stared at the former president and scoffed. Wilson had watched the scene happen, and he later told House that it had been the highlight of his month. I like that man, Massigli, Wilson had told House. Do try and see him if you can. See that he isn't ignored altogether. The president's support had been important, for Massigli did continue to be listened to eagerly by those that mattered. So long as one could claim legitimacy and support from important people, one would have a voice. These were critical ingredients to a successful representation of one's country. Without these ingredients, one may as well have stayed at home. The first item on the agenda was Japan's racial equality proposal. Baron Makino Nabuaki, seated behind Prince Sione, stood up to speak on this topic. For the sake of Japanese and Asian self-respect, Nabuaki said, it was imperative that all present recognize the rights of all peoples all across the world to equal treatment. If God created the world, and if he created man, then he did not intend to create at the same time a hierarchy as is preserved today, Nabuaki said. Onlookers said that the Japanese foreign minister, still bearing a bandage over his left arm from the skirmishes in Paris three weeks before, was especially articulate and impassioned, even holding the inherently opposed Wilson's attention for the duration of the speech. Lloyd George then proclaimed the proposal a noble one, but indicated that those present should be entitled to vote on this scheme, in time to return to the discussion by the following week. Nabuaki declared that he was content to wait for this decision for another week, but he impressed upon the Prime Minister the urgency of the idea of equality. We simply wish, as your allies and friends, to have this relationship accepted and respected by all. Nabuaki then sat down, 
and the delegates of the Dominions looked especially apprehensive and sullen. Lloyd George was not looking forward to hearing what they would have to say, but first, the Arabs would speak. Prince Navwar Sharif and Hussein bin Ali rose simultaneously next to present their Arab state settlement which had been reached earlier in the week. Gentlemen, Prince Navar Sharif said in perfect French, My family and that of Hussein bin Ali have elected, after several days' deliberations, to officially unite in a marriage which will bond our great and prestigious dynasties together as one. Next Monday I will marry bin Ali's sister and he will marry mine. The ceremony will be held in private for family only, but... All blessings and warm wishes are welcome. Whoever is blessed with the son first will rule over the Kingdom of the Arab States, and the second family will serve as second in command, with special privileges over the holy sites. We have arrived at a compromise to share responsibilities and glories among the Arabian people, and it is my solemn wish that the sovereignty of this new Kingdom of the Arab States is respected. I understand that an agreement was reached with the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, where in return for recognition of our independence, we agree to trade portions of our oil reserves. I commend this agreement to the floor and welcome the chance for peace and cooperation among our great families. Applause followed and Hussein remained standing, muttering some words in Arabic, which Sharif translated, and some more polite applause followed. How on earth did those two savages come to an agreement? Tancred whispered to Fitzwilliam. I believe it was the Swiss man, Alistair. They say Mr. Kalender can work wonders. I should introduce him to my wife, Tancred replied. A hush came over the room next, as Premier Poincaré stood up. Esteemed delegates, colleagues and attendees to the conference, Poincaré began. I understand that the last few months have been trying and exhausting for many of us. My country has been rocked with fear and panic, but more recently, rioting. I believe I speak for everyone in France when I express my sincere thanks to you all here for remaining faithful with us and for negotiating with us in sympathy even while chaos seemed to reign. I must confess, it has not been easy getting France back on track. This recent war, I must reiterate, inflicted upon my country a mortal wound and the consequences of this wound are perhaps never completely going to be grasped in their full weight. However, However, I can confirm that France is restored to its rightful place among nations. Your confirmation of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch's 16 points was far from a universally easy task, and I appreciate that many greeted his ascendancy to the presidency with apprehension. No one more than I, dear delegates, for it was my presidency that the Marshal usurped. However, I must impress upon you all today how warmly received your confirmation of the 16 points has been among my countrymen. I have spoken with these hard men of France, and they wish for nothing more than the war to end, and for normality to return. However, in light of the sparse terms which were offered, and the insult which was presented as the German delegates took their seats beside the victors, even the weakest of Frenchmen, even the most desperate, urged action in the name of the country's honour and good name. We could not allow Germany to defeat us in the peace, after we had defeated her in the war. A similar appeal to the Chamber of Deputies, that solemn body of the Republic, brought a similar result from the countrymen. It was a cry of anger and despair, a call to action which urged that something be done to save the nation from her humiliation by any means. It was then, in the course of the demonstrations which began peacefully, that hostile elements, we believe Bolsheviks, 
hijacked the democratic action and transformed it into an ugly expression of violence, which claimed no shortage of casualties. France has atoned for these sins, but she has also punished those responsible for inciting such atrocities. Pavel Lobova remains imprisoned, his Polish nationality stripped from him by the Polish National Committee, and he awaits sentencing in connection to the political murders which bear his hand, including that of our late Premier, Georges Clemenceau. Following the resolution of these misunderstandings, a meeting between myself and President Marshal Foch proceeded surprisingly well. You can imagine my apprehension in meeting the man who had cost me my position, which I had held since 1913. However, in the course of discussions, the President Marshal, flanked by moderate political advisers from the previous Clemenceau administration, assured me that he wished to make use of my political talents as a statesman and servant of France. He urged me to take up this mantle of statecraft, and he urged me also not to hold against him this responsibility, this burden which he felt forced to bear. I admit I bitterly resent my removal at Foch's hands, but the President Marshal has committed pen to paper as per the requests of the United States President Woodrow Wilson and pledged to resign once this peace treaty had been concluded with Germany. President Marshal Ferdinand Foch's sole goal is to ensure that France receives the best deal humanly possible, that she is saved from further conflict with Germany and that she never has to face into the abyss ever again. This is his great mission, as he calls it, and I identify with its goals, as I have done since my childhood, when I watched German soldiers march through my beloved Lorraine. I consent to serving France. Sometimes, in moments of crisis, people do not act as honourably as they should. President Marshal Foch is certainly not without honour, but he is also not a perfect man. For this, he says, he will continue to atone, but he refuses to atone, as do I, for the dereliction of duty which would be felt in allowing France to suffer such a humiliation in the peace conference. So I declare now my intention never to be silent when France's honour is at stake, never to permit anything stand in the way of justice, and never to cease defending those individuals who would seek to do the same. Thank you for this opportunity to represent France. Thank you for the honour of receiving me in this prestigious hotel. I hope you and I, that your homeland and that of France, will be the greatest of allies and the firmest of friends. Poincaré sat down to a chorus of applause, including from Teddy Roosevelt, who evidently had been convinced. Woodrow Wilson politely clapped, as did Lloyd George. Neither man could afford to demonstrate his heartfelt sympathy for what had amounted to a coup, even if the temperature in France had cooled and moderated since. In reality, of course, neither Wilson nor Lloyd George cared too much about what went on in France now. Both were in fact eager to move, and make some actual progress. Wilson had been especially encouraged by Foch's acceptance of his six reservations from the previous week. This demonstrated firsthand the President Marshal's enthusiasm for compromise, and it opened the door to reaching further agreement on adjustments to some of the more sensitive points, like Article 15, which granted Foch the right to veto the final peace treaty. As Wilson understood it, Lloyd George was working on a solution to that issue, but in the meantime, it was imperative that the French were cooperated with, and that Foch's vision for the conference, complete with its structure of a Council of Eight and Minor Council, be respected. Wilson cleared his throat. Thank you, Your Excellency. I understand we are now to receive a collected appeal from the dominions of the British Empire. Walter Cameron could barely hear what Louis Botha was saying. Something about German Southwest Africa? 
Oliver Flanagan whispered. Do you think they have much oil there? Walter Cameron glared at his colleague. It is a shambles we are seated here, Bruce Pug whispered behind him. We should be up there with President Roosevelt, not down here with the minor leagues. Cameron reprimanded him. There's only so much space up there, Mr. Pug, and besides, this is our opportunity to make connections. Cameron turned to ask Joseph Zahn for support, but saw that the multilingual Zahn was already deep in conversation, in French, no less, with Mr. Charles Shearer of Alsace-Lorraine. Evidently, Poincaré's reference to Lorraine during his speech, and his active glaring at Charles Shearer as he did so, had ruffled some feathers. Cameron couldn't understand how a chunk of land straddling a river could provoke so much anger and passion. But then, there was the Mexican-American border, after all. "'I do wish that Boer would speak up,' whispered William Randolph Hearst. "'How am I supposed to file a report if I can't hear what Mr. Botha is saying?' Cameron was impressed, and complimented Hearst on his pronunciation. Hearst looked puzzled. "'I called him a Boer because he is a Boer. I am quite aware that he was a Boer.' Cameron sighed. So close, and yet so far. Arthur McCallville paused. He was aware that the eyes of over 500 foreign dignitaries, plus press, were upon him. Yet he had to say his piece. It is my understanding, McCallville said, that France has offered to recognise Newfoundland's possession of the islands of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon. Islands within its sphere of interest, in addition to Bird Island in Tanga Province, Belgian East Africa. Foch's recognition of these possessions and their new jurisdiction will go a long way towards relieving the hostility which many of my countrymen feel towards him. Gasps and shocked expressions greeted McCallville's peace. Poincaré continued to stare a hole through him. I apologise if I speak too bluntly, friends, but the day has been long and involved already. Rather than platitudes, I bring you the bare facts. Newfoundland has sacrificed much for the Allied cause and contains no shortage of people desperate to see these sacrifices acknowledged and rewarded. We are a hardy and loyal people, but we do not wish to lose where others gain. Our brothers and sisters in these nearby islands, the legacy of French North Africa for many centuries ago, surely long to join us as well. Rather than muddy the waters with a plebiscite, which I do not believe will be carried out fairly, I urge all present to accept this development. Poincaré prepared to stand up, but before he could, Lloyd George stood bolt upright. Newfoundland enjoys the full support of the Crown, Lloyd George said, and I urge the regime of President Marshal Foch similarly to relinquish these relics of a bygone age to the proper administration. Let this be viewed as a test of the President Marshal's willingness to cooperate with us in the new light of this new day. The Prime Minister sat back down, and Poincaré obediently stood up after him. The Honourable Gentleman from Newfoundland demands a great deal from us, but we are willing to accept in principle. I will have a treaty drawn up by my government. McCauville smiled and nodded and sat back down. Tankard whispered to Lloyd George, seated in front of him. I'm sure this display of solidarity among the Dominions will go down well, Prime Minister. I didn't know McCauville was going to do that, Lloyd George spat, but I couldn't very well abandon him, could I? He told me he was only going to request fishing concessions. He'll be lucky if I don't concede all of Newfoundland to Foch after this. Tancred gulped. When Lloyd George got mad, he really got mad. 
General David Whiteside Mackay of Australia rose next. I will keep my address short and to the point, for one is in danger of trying everyone's patience here, he began, which immediately had the effect of turning everyone's heads. It was a clever tactic, but it remained to be seen whether the veteran of Gallipoli could in fact be brief. He wasn't known for his public speaking acumen, though he had a way of inspiring the troops which few commanders could match. I speak now to the Council of Eight and the Minor Council, where I know there to be seated good and honourable men. I must speak my mind. As a soldier, I am taught to do so. My mind tells me that French help will be invaluable if we are to crush the Bolsheviks, and that as a united front, launching from Warsaw, we shall be crowned with success. My heart, however, my heart warns me against hoping for such optimistic returns, even with the flurry of support which Foch's regime now enjoys. I confess I was surprised when my name was put forward to command the International Tiger Brigade in this Clemenceau Directive, and I have had some time to consider my options. Some say the war is over, and that I should return to my home in New South Wales, where my wife and children await. To you I offer the evidence of war all across our great globe, where suffering and despair continues to dominate the lives of those less fortunate. I could not look my young children in the eye if I knew that, when I became fatigued or disenchanted with the cause, I returned home simply because I wished the war to end. This war and this struggle does not end because we wish it to, and it does not end because we decide to go home. It ends when Bolshevism is destroyed, when its tenants are exposed, and when the conditions of the peoples that supported it are improved to a degree that they see no need to support it again. Bolshevism feeds and has fed on desperation. It depends upon privation and mismanagement. I urge us all to consider, then, how we plan not only to win the war in Russia, but also to win the hearts and minds of the millions that currently support the traitor to humanity, Lenin. Present to me a plan for this, as well as a plan for the military campaign, and I will lead your tigers to the end of the earth, and not a man alive will stop me. But present me only the plan for conquest and destruction, and I will return heartbroken to my family, and I will tell them the story, not of how their father could not do what was necessary, but how the greatest men in the world somehow failed to imagine a better one. The choice, gentlemen, is yours. David McKay abruptly sat down, and the entire room was silent. One could hear a pin drop. Sir Robert Borden, Canada's premier, was open-mouthed. He had never heard Mackay speak for so long, or say so much. It was his turn to speak next, but before he did so, Poincaré rose to his feet. I thank my honourable Australian friend for his moving speech. He is correct. We must formulate a plan for Russia after Bolshevism, and this involves an effort more substantial than the commitment of soldiers. In the next week, as soldiers begin their march to Warsaw, we will finalise plans for the distribution of alms to the supporters and the enemies of Bolshevism, so that the great Russian lands will be pacified and healed rather than merely conquered. At this, Poincaré sat down, and Sir Robert Borden of Canada stood up and cleared his throat. Gentlemen, I had planned a long and detailed speech, but it is now late in the day and my Australian peer has represented the civilising mission of the British Empire, as well as the fundamentals of humanity, better than I ever could. I commend his speech to the floor, and I commit Canada's support to the cause, if, as General McKay describes, these conditions are fulfilled. Thank you. Sir Robert Borden sat down 
and Lloyd George breathed a sigh of relief. He had not been the target of their speeches after all, and in fact, all of the Dominions seemed very much in line with the cause. This was good news, but work still needed to be done. Gentlemen, gentlemen, the Prime Minister whispered. I hear the Council for Russian Freedoms is meeting in about an hour. I know it has been an intense day already, but I wondered if one of you might stand to represent Britain. As it is the first meeting of this council, and much is rumoured to be under discussion there, I believe our presence is warranted. Certainly, Prime Minister, Fitzwilliam said. Is there anything else? Yes, gentlemen, Lloyd George replied. Let me know if the Newfoundlander causes any trouble. Mr. Robotnik, going my way, I presume? Dmitri Robotnik turned around to see Pilsudski's face beaming back at him. Long time no see, Commander, Robotnik joked, and the two men embraced. They had last met in that cramped room only a few hours ago, but now the surroundings promised to be somewhat more sumptuous and proud. This was the first Council for Russian Freedoms, the joint effort by the peace conference proposed by President Marshal Foch to plot a campaign into Russia which would eviscerate Bolshevism and hopefully lay the foundations for a democratic Russian republic. As it was the first meeting, the major players were expected to be present. The 19th of April 1919 had already been a busy day indeed, and as this was the final meeting out of three for many delegates present, the mood would either be jovial or subdued and resentful. With Easter at hand, there at least seemed a chance for rest and relaxation over the next few days. Robotnik was eager to hear what figures Pilsudski had conjured. Charged with taking stock of the situation, Pilsudski claimed to have details on what nation had committed or would be committing soldiers, normally in the form of volunteers. The Anabay Hotel, while unable to commit volunteers itself, had generously committed £1,000 to the cause of liberating Russia. It was said that a son of Catherine the Great had once contemplated purchasing the land where the Anabay Hotel now stood, so the proprietor claimed. So, Russia held a special place in the hearts of all staff. Notwithstanding the truth of this statement, Robotnik was weighing up whether he should venture to Russia himself in the expedition, though Paderewski had said, warmly and gently to him, that he would present too great a target. When Robotnik had disagreed, noting that his family was not very well known to the Bolsheviks, Paderewski had looked him up and down and grinned, and he and Robotnik had shared a laugh. His height at least enabled him to see approaching delegates from far away, which could be beneficial when one did not wish to engage in conversation. It had enabled Robotnik to avoid any conversations with Yuan Bratianu so far. Pilsudski and Robotnik entered the much larger doorway of the central conference room, where roughly an hour before, the room had been filled with journalists and dignitaries of all kinds for a plenary conference. Some journalists, curious about this Council for Russian Freedoms, remained, as did some curious technical delegates. Foch had urged Pilsudski, who had mostly been in charge of organising this first meeting, to let all those who wished to attend have a seat. The seats for outsiders, Pilsudski was relieved to note, were full, and these people actually stood up to clap and cheer as he and Robotnik entered the room. Pilsudski was flattered and greatly spirited. On the other hand, perhaps these onlookers just enjoyed the sight of the six-foot-eight Robotnik. The structure of the Council for Russian Freedoms was less hierarchical than the previous plenary conference had been. 
A long table at the top of the room, reserved for all appointed delegates, would serve as the primary forum for discussion and proposals. Translators of French, English, Italian, but especially Russian, were already seated. Filing through the mounds of paper, which the American delegation in particular had produced, these translators looked similar to all other underlings Pilsudski had seen. Exhausted, gaunt, pale, and stressed. Pilsudski sympathised with him, and promised himself that he would only use the translator's services where absolutely necessary. Already seated were the usual suspects, and they rose from their seats to take the Polish veteran's hand. Sir Arthur Fitzwilliam was representing Britain, Rene Massigli for France, Theodore Roosevelt for the United States, Lorenzo Martili for Italy, Lady Nora Chok for Hungary, Ioan Bratianu for Romania, Edward Benesch for the Czechoslovak peoples, Charles Scheer for Alsace-Lorraine, Paul von Leto Vorbeck for Germany, Karl Renner for Austria, Johann Hoffmann for Bavaria, and Bonifacio Fidel for the Zionist voice. Hilsudski rolled his eyes when he saw Fidel. That man had been a relentless pain in the neck ever since he had heard about this council and its lack of a hierarchy. Perhaps this tireless instigator, made notorious since the collapse of his intermarium free trade agreement brainchild, hoped to now gain some disproportionate influence owing to the equal structure of the council's setup. Yet there were other matters to consider first. Johann Hoffmann, Bavarian minister-president, rose to address the council as its first speaker. Before I address the anti-Bolshevik cause, gentlemen, allow me to first enlighten you on the situation in Bavaria. Johann Hoffmann then talked for some ten minutes, filling in everyone who cared to listen about that situation in Bavaria. The detail was delivered well and articulately, but this wasn't why these figures were gathered. When it came time to discuss the Bolshevik issue, Hoffman essentially identified with what the Australian David McKay had said earlier in the day. This was becoming a default tactic for those that cared little about the anti-Bolshevik cause. As he had spoken, Paul von Leto Vorbeck had loudly gritted his teeth. Lady Nora Chok then stood up next. Gentlemen, before I address the anti-Bolshevik cause, allow me to first enlighten you on the situation in Hungary. Pilsudski was beginning to notice a pattern. Not Bonifacio Fidel, but all delegates so far were using this opportunity to state the case for their country, rather than express their opinions and plans for the Clemenceau Directive. This didn't mean Lady Nora Chalk had nothing important to say. Apparently, the former Habsburg Emperor Charles had launched a coup in Budapest, seizing the reins of government in light of a feared Bolshevik uprising. Civil war, Chalk claimed, seems to lurk around the corner and it was not clear how tolerant of dissent King Charles now intended to be. We Hungarians did not, the Countess exclaimed, expel the Habsburgs, only for them to return in a different form. We had Habsburg kings before, and we do not need them now. Yet I fear further bloodshed in my country, so I ask the Allies for some sort of solution. There was an awkward silence. My lady, Pilsudski sighed, please do not take offence, but this is the anti-Bolshevik discussion. We are not positioned to solve Hungarian problems. That is the role of the minor council, or council of eight if you feel necessary. Lady Nora nodded, coughed, and muttered some expletive in Hungarian before walking calmly out of the room. A painful silence followed her exit. It was at that moment that Juan Bratianu sighed a self-indulgent sigh and stood up. Gentlemen, I am glad you could be here, but I am sorry that you all 
had to see that, he began. It seems that my friend from Hungary faces no end of troubles and disruptions from home, which leads me to my point about Bolshevism. I believe it would be fair to stress that Hungary has existed under the cloud of that evil creed for so long, and while it is exemplary that she has, apparently, cleared those clouds away, we are still left pondering, what is Hungary? Is she Bolshevik or is she monarchist? Is she stable or unsteady? Will she make a good administrator for Transylvania? Or would she spread her instability there? I believe that while the answer may be hard to accept, it cannot be denied that Hungary and Lady Chuck are not mentally or physically equipped to deal with that administration. Per my understanding of the situation, with a great and noble quest to rid the world of Bolshevism underway, Budapest was originally chosen to serve as the base for that mission, only for that city to render itself unsuitable due to its frequent disruptions. I would never recommend Bucharest for this task, since my dear city is ill-equipped for such a mission, but I would draw your attentions to that fact, that Hungary has let us down once before, and if given the chance to rule Transylvania in any capacity, she will let us down again. As an ally, as a member of the Entente, and as a firm campaigner for democracy, I urge you all to bear these facts in mind. Thank you for your time. Pilsudski rubbed his temples. Monsieur Bratianu, you know full well that we are in no position to determine the future of Transylvania here. Bratianu nodded, a self-indulgent smile now spreading across his face, and a cloud of cigarette smoke already hovering above him. Pilsudski sighed loudly. Do any honourable delegates present wish to present information or plans solely on proposals for the liberation of Russia? Without talking first of their own home country? Not a single delegate put up their hand. The Council for Russian Freedoms hadn't been going well so far, and now Pilsudski realised that the Newfoundland delegate, Arthur McCallville, was missing. According to the agenda, McCallville was meant to speak next. Now what would be done? Pilsudski didn't have to wait long. The door into the room was flung loudly open, and a panting Arthur McCallville returned from the telegraph office where he had been waiting news from Newfoundland. Entering at a brisk walking pace, he made for the long table and fixed on Dmitri Robotnik. McCallville then sped over to him with a piece of paper in his hand, which he passed to Dmitri. Dmitri scanned the paper, his eyes widening, and he began to shout loud exultations in Russian, before returning to English with shouts of, Sir! Sir! Bring me my finest chilled vodka and glasses for everyone! We are celebrating! Bewildered, those seated at the long table looked to one another to see what was the meaning of Dimitri's revelry. Sir Alistair was nearest Arthur and asked him what was the meaning for his excitement. McCalva's face was already alight with excitement, so that told a story in and of itself. The Whites have taken Tsaritsyn, said the Newfoundlander. They have the Reds on the run. It was soon revealed that Against all odds, and in an ingenious piece of battlefield deception, the white Russian commanders Alexander Kolchak and Anton Denikin had linked up and successfully routed the Bolsheviks in the city of Tsaritsyn, a city of many hundreds of thousands, on the confluence of the Volga River. Where once they had been isolated, now the two foremost white commanders were united, and they posed a uniquely dangerous threat to the Bolsheviks. Putting on my history podcaster cap for a moment, removing momentarily my delegation master cap as I do so, I should just clear up that this is the city which would in our timeline bear its more infamous name, Stalingrad, and host the bloodiest battle of the Second World War. 
this triumph of white forces over the Reds suggested that this development would be subject to change, though. It would transpire that it was in no small part thanks to a contingent of British military advisers embedded within Denikin's forces. Despite several assaults against the Bolsheviks in Tsaritsyn, Denikin had been unable to break into the city. Contrary to War Office instructions then, Major Ewan Cameron Bruce volunteered to spearhead a tank assault on the city. Major Bruce could a striking figure. He showed the scars of his experience of the Great War, having lost his left arm in battle. With initial success, it was found the tank regiment lacked sufficient fuel to continue their assault, but Major Bruce took what was available to fuel his own tank, and he single-handedly, under heavy enemy fire, drove his tank into that city and captured it for white forces. Two days later, he had the honour of accompanying Denikin when they met with Admiral Kolchak in a ceremonial link-up of their two forces on the banks of the River Volga. This development, so you know, did actually occur in June 1919 in real history, and Major Bruce was actually a complete one-armed hero. But the only difference between this story and the story we're trying to tell in the delegation game is the fact that Kolchak never linked up with Denikin, as Kolchak was too busy defending his Siberian pocket at the city of Omsk. White forces would hold Tsaritsyn in real-life history until January 1920, when forces commanded by the young Joseph Stalin, incredibly enough, led the assault which would make his name, against the city which would soon bear his name. Just thought it would be helpful to clear that up, dear delegates and perhaps other listening history friends, I will now put my delegation master cap back on. The two armies, under the invigorated white commanders, encircled the Bolshevik forces, estimated at 60,000, who remained south of the city of Tsaritsyn. This Bolshevik force retreated south to Astrakhan by the 15th of April, but without any further line of retreat or resupply, the prospects for this army were not expected to be positive. The Bolsheviks now faced the formidable combination of these two major white commanders, and morale in their camp was believed to be at an all-time low. In reaction to these severe military setbacks, the Bolsheviks postponed their planned counterattack against Kolchak's old base in Siberia, and Joseph Stalin was recalled early from his command at Petrograd, also known as St. Petersburg, to take over control of forces in southern Russia. The strategic implications of this white Russian military coup were undeniable. With this larger combined force and momentum behind them, the white forces will be well placed to coordinate with forces in Eastern Europe to liberate the Ukraine, potentially linking up as they did so with any Western force that was sent in under the guise of the Clemenceau Directive. Then, perhaps if all went well, this white Russian and Western Allied force could march on the major centres of Moscow and St. Petersburg. And there was further cause for celebration. The Czech Legion, which had once occupied the main stations of the Trans-Siberian Railway, managed to follow the white tide towards the Volga. Their military force and prestige was less important than their most prized possession, the gold reserves of the old Tsarist regime, which they had been clinging to for several months. With Kolchak's blessing and some persuasion for Denikin, the Czechs were permitted to venture to Warsaw with the bulk of these gold reserves. It was said that they would pay for the expenses of the Clemenceau Directive many times over. Perhaps, René Massigli dared to imagine after reading this document, Russia might even pay back her debts to France in this indirect way. The two white commanders requested 20% of the gold reserves for maintenance and repairs of their armies, which was duly given, 
and the Czech Legion travelled with great haste ever since, reaching Warsaw on the morning of the 19th of April and communicating through telegram all that had happened shortly afterwards. Pilsudski placed the telegram gently on the long table after reading and absorbing its full contents. By now most of the delegates were locked in private discussions amongst themselves, yet there was no need for further discussion. Pilsudski still had the figures in his hands, but they could be read at the next meeting, and it was indeed possible that these figures would be subject to large increases following this military coup by the Whites. He wanted this first meeting of the Council for Russian Freedoms to be remembered for delivering news of this breakthrough to those assembled, and nothing else. Perhaps, Pilsudski dared to dream, this was the beginning of a new world without Bolshevism, and even, someday, without war. And that, dear delegates, is the end of the episode. Obviously, an awful lot has happened here, but I want to draw your attention first and foremost to the Japanese racial equality proposal, which I'll be sending out a link to you all to vote on. Hopefully by now I've gotten everyone's email addresses down correctly, but if you don't get the link to vote, then be sure to let me know through the usual channels. My question to vote on is as follows. Do you wish to approve of the Japanese racial equality proposal, which would enshrine the equal treatment of all races and peoples into the final peace treaty? The choices are yes, no, and abstain. And just as before, consequences will follow for whatever option you choose, so choose wisely. With that said, I believe I can take my leave. Till next time, dear delegates, my name is Zach, I am your Delegation Master, and this has been episode 12 of the Delegation Game. Thanks so much for listening and for playing. Special thanks to Arthur McCallville for submitting that very detailed military account of what went down in the city of Zaritzen a century ago. Some parts of it are true, some parts of it not so true, but thanks nonetheless. Other than that, history friends, join me next week for episode 13, and in the meantime, I'll be seeing you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 